My name is Jonathan Martin. You're listening to Zeitcast. However you got here, whyever you're here, I'm so glad that you're in this space, that you're listening. Thanks for being here. Hope you're easing into Lent okay. For those of you that practice Lent, who are considering practicing Lent in some form, that's what's on my mind right now. Got a lovely conversation to share with you tomorrow with Dr. Chris Green. Some solo reflections of mine. Awesome. Some videos out on um, Instagram, social media, stuff like that uh, with some thoughts to hopefully help stimulate some Lenten practice. If that's a thing that you're into for today, this is the end of Black History Month. Black History Month. I can't say this strongly enough. I feel like um, as much as I love that we have these kinds of spaces that increasingly for me feel like consecrated times and spaces, I think the mistake is when we sort of conceive of those things as like Black History Month for Black people as opposed to this idea that this is a time for everybody to think deeply listen deeply, drink deeply from the wells of this tradition. Um, some of you have heard this most recent podcast with Dr. Otis Moss III from our first Minhal lecture, but one of the things I love about his new book so much is I think it illustrates this idea of Black spirituality containing um, really exactly what we need for the salvation of us all, <laughs> if I'd said this in that way. Um, ideas that are salvific for everybody. So I hope you've been tuned in, but as wonderful these Minhal lectures have been, I wanted you to come behind the curtain a little bit for a more intimate conversation that I had with my dear, dear friend, Reverend Cecil Jones Davis and Shane Claiborne. Um, this was in a smaller environment at our Center for Spiritual Life, able to invite some students in to just be in our space there, which is very much kind of a living room type of space. And so I want to invite you into that living room with us and to, as all of those conversations were for these few days, uh, what I found to be such a life-giving conversation. And I hope uh, this will speak to where you are while I'm not taking the time because I want the weight to fall on the conversation ahead to link these things explicitly to Lent. I think if we think about that, especially in terms of Lent being a time of, well, of this sort of space where we specifically come away and come apart and we enter into this season where we go into the wilderness and we go on that journey to the cross and we enter into hopefully the right kind of self-sacrifice and the right kind of journey to death that makes way for new life, that makes room for new life. Hope you'll think about how this conversation can help you clear some space for the kind of new life that you need, that your community needs. These are certainly people who are faithful guides to me, as I'll say more about here in just a second. Hopefully the audio quality is not too wonky. In the days ahead, uh, these will be conversations that have actual microphones. Um, Imagine that. Thank you for again for listening. For those of you who support us on Patreon, always want to say a special thank you to you. If this is speaking to your soul, anything you can do to uh, partner with us is always deeply appreciated. 
right now, I want to roll right into this conversation. And as always, all of you is welcome in this space. some spots and I knowing you were just coming off the plane I didn't want you to have like to do the whole thing but we're so honored that you're here and I would love for you at least to get to say hello to everybody so Shane Seaborn I always tell people I think it's like uh I can't think of an activist who's influenced me in all the ways that Shane has I guess you're a little bit older than me I think by a couple years and it's always felt like you're like the elder brother who I remember you know yeah. The first time I heard Shane speak, I was probably I was probably in college and thinking like, I mean, how much it got a hold of me and challenged me. I was thinking back, uh, I led a little, uh, like basically a book study around Jesus for president. Was that been like 2008? What year was that? Yeah, I think so. I don't even know. There's a number of, there have been, been a lot of books for you. So like, um, which, by the way, I should mention that. Well, let's not hit any of that book right there. Uh, I will go ahead and make a plug. So, Shane has a new book coming out Tuesday Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. Um, I, I love the endorsements for this book Father Roar and um, Lisa Sharon Harper, who we love. Anyway, it's a, it's a beautiful book. And I'm so excited that we have it here before anybody else does. That's, uh, that's special. I, I've been looking forward to this. I love Reverend CC and Otis Moss and Diamond McCollum. Just glad to be. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. We're, we are so thrilled to hear. Shane, we were saying on the way over, so he's been with the community he founded uh, The Simple Way in Philly for 25 years now? Yeah, mm-hmm. 25 years last month. <laughs> That's not <laughs> how, how do you describe the simple way to people? Like, and then we'll let you off the side. No, don't let me. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's an intentional community, kind of in spirit of the heard of the Catholic Worker Movement or you know other community houses. We all moved in as twenty-year-olds in a, in a house, and it turned into a village. So now we've got I don't know a couple dozen properties all around each other, community gardens and um, abandoned houses we're fixing up. So if you're ever out in Philly, we're on the north side, come see it. We were talking a bit about what the what you've been doing with guns, yeah. which is which probably requires an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> what you've been doing with guns. Yeah, well, I mean, sadly, there's lots of things I love about my neighborhood. Uh, so the, the gun violence is one of the things that we're working on, and uh, we, we have a disproportionate amount of uh, weight of the gun deaths in our neighborhood. And so uh, we were inspired by the the vision of the prophets, Mike and Isaiah, beating swords in the clouds and uh, spears in the pruning hook. So we got we started inviting people to donate guns or, you know, disarm, get, get guns off the streets. And we've uh, been doing that for about five years. So we turned them into garden tools. I brought my house to you tonight. But, uh, and uh, we're making crosses out of them. I just made Reverend C.C. Potter. Um, yeah, so I'm an aspiring blacksmith along with my wife. But it's it's more than the guns. It's about the 
you know, doing something and turning from death to life and to declare that it doesn't have to be this way. Transform meadow, we can transform hearts and streets. And so, yeah, so we got a little storefront right around the corner from where we live now. And uh, love it. It's wonderful. Well, we're so honored to have you, my friend. Thank you for being here. You and me both. You and me both. Um, you can do this for a couple of days. Um, Cece, by the way, will also be singing tonight, so we're super excited about that. And it is in the tonight. Otis Moss III is here tonight. Dr. Moss, pastor of Trinity United Church, uh, Church of Christ, Chicago. A lot of people know that church. He's being the, the home church of the Obamas. And uh, uh, just, just an extraordinary community. But um, so Cece is one of my dearest friends. Uh, we used to live in Oklahoma together. I'm, I'm, I need disclaimers to the Oklahoma friends who are watching. We kind of got it out. Yeah, Cece, we kind of got out of Oklahoma. <laughs> but we still love it. Um, and so our story, come on in. Good to see you, friend. Um, so our story is largely, uh, we helped found a, a church called The Table together, along with Nicole and our friend Malika. Um, and it was kind of in the midst of all this. Cece's done so much just incredible work in her life. She worked in the Obama administration and um, been an activist and advocate in so many different directions. So I mentioned um, interest for on uh, menstrual equity. Um, but it was during that season that we were all together doing this little thing in Oklahoma City, which I might add was very uphill mm-hmm. in the cultural climate that we were in. Um, that Cece uh, got inspired by documentaries. We saw about a man named Julius Jones who had been uh, on Oklahoma's death row at that point, I guess, for almost 20 years, uh, facing execution. And um, it just so got a hold of Cece's heart. She felt like she had to do something. And we talked a little bit uh, this morning. So Govin, uh, being a church where Dr. King preached on September 5th, 1960, and just speaking about that kind of black church prophetic witness, that's one of the things I love about uh, so you, you didn't really get permission from anybody to do justice for Julius. Like, you just decided... <laughs> You're going to do something. And uh, so I remember with our little group, when we were praying together, hoping to get 100,000 signatures, which turned into over 7 million signatures for the petition. And by the end, everybody from Kim Kardashian, John Legend, all these people were like involved, um, but came right down to the wire. And literally still set to be executed day of. Was it three hours before? Four hours. So not you know I was there at the uh, at the prison that day and just like what the, the kind of moment that was, but we've lived a lot of life in the trenches together and shared a lot of things and um, I just felt like especially thinking about that the school of the prophets they called it when when King was here it just feels right to have you here um, for this moment Black History Month uh, all the significance of this place and now I get to interview you. I'm other favorite. So, so honored you're your friend. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Thank y'all for having me. Thank y'all for having me. Maybe I'll start this week. We've done this a lot. We've done a lot of these kind of conversations. Uh, why don't I start real complicated? How are you, Cece? How are you right now? <laughs> I'm great. You know, it's been, I have been away from home for about seven days now. So I miss my kid. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I'm doing really well, and I'm just so grateful to have had the opportunities that God has let me have the last few days, and um, just connecting with people, and trying to do good work, and you know, just trying to associate voices with whatever the role is. And I'm so glad to be here, man. Well, um, 
we're we're just so thrilled to have you. I guess I'm gonna start with this since with the event explicitly connecting to Black History Month. Um, and I would just love to hear you say a little bit in terms of how your connection to church, Black church tradition informs who you are and what you're doing now. Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, I grew up in a really small town in Virginia. Um, a little bit about my town, Halifax County, was the um, largest slaveholding county in the state. Um, Henrietta Lacks is from Halifax mm -hmm. County. And some of you will know about Henrietta Lacks. Her DNA was taken uh, unlocally and um, has stayed many miles at the resort. resort. Um, but I grew up in a town where um, race was very much still a very big thing. You know, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and it was just kind of like a place set back in time. Um, and uh, when I grew up seeing the Christian Methodist Episcopal in this little bitty church. And uh, my grandmother was the organist. Um, she only did one tempo, and that was very slow. <laughs> she said that was the Methodist way. Like, I don't care. I would say, Granny, can you just speed this one up? This a little bit. That's not Methodist. So it would all the time be slow. So, um, I grew up in that little Methodist church. And, um, you know, the Black church is my foundation. Um, it has rooted us, Black people, historically for hundreds of years now in a story with God when um, culture and society said that we didn't have a story with God, that we didn't belong to God, that we were something else, but we weren't God's children. And so the Black church has been, for me and for so many people, um, you know, the springboard of our morale, you know, of the morale that we can believe that we are somebody, that we can believe mm -hmm. that God created us for purpose, that we can believe that we are spiritual and talented and gifted and mm -hmm. all of these things. The Black church didn't just do that for me. The Black church has done that for Black folks all over the place for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in growing up where I grew up as a kid, I always had a real... Uh, it was, I always kind of grieved this 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 reality that that I lived in a place that was still so segregated, you know. Like it was still very clear to me, even though um, it wasn't on a, on the books. It was still very clear to me that as a black child, I wasn't allowed in the country club pool. It was very clear to me. It was uh, very clear to me what neighborhoods were. The black neighborhoods, what neighborhoods, with the white neighborhoods, and all of those things as a kid really grieved me. Mm -hmm. I remember having a real um, conversion, I would call it a conversion experience, uh, visiting my uncle um, in Seattle, Washington when I was 13 years old. And this was at a multicultural church, um, multi uh, uh, non denominational church, and I had never seen black and white folks in the same mm -hmm. church before. I, no, let me go back. I had seen one white man in a black church in my little church when I was about 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old. The usher of my church passed away and taught me and my sister how to be ushers. He passed away 
and his white uncle came to his service. Now, I'm putting a pin in that to say that I'm, I'm from a place, I'm 39% Western European, 61% West African. That 39% is a direct result of the rape of at least two of my great grandmother. And so for this white man to be in a black church for his black nephew, that was literally the first and only time that I had seen a white person in a black church. And so when I had this experience in Seattle and I saw these white and black people in church together, I was undone. And by the way, it was also the first time that I had ever um, heard of praise and worship music. This was like for the early 90s. And so the, being Methodist, all, all I knew was hymns mm -hmm. up to that point and, and gospel music. And so um, that set me on a new kind of faith journey. Mm -hmm. So when I came back to that very small segregated town, I didn't want to worship the same way. Yeah. And so I still went to my, to my church, still went to my little black church. But on Sunday nights at six o'clock, I would go to the Church of God that was up the street. And I remember, you know, the first day me and my sister went there. Um, they didn't have any black people at their church, you know. But this older white man met us at the door with the little program. He was so stunned to see us, <laughs> but he was happy to see us, you know. Um, and we we would go to that little that that Church of God every Sunday at six o'clock. Because it was just started turning our heart, me and my sister, it just started turning our heart that we just needed something. We needed this faith thing, this, this church thing to look different for us. And that's, um, it kind of set me on a whole, a whole journey. But I'll stop right there. Well, I love that even you're talking about these sort of twists and turns in your faith journey. It's one of the things that we're highlighting with the mental lectures, which I feel like is, is kind of, it feels a little bold. I think it's a little aggressive, but also it does it. Uh, I think Thatcher is right. Uh, putting about the way uh, my friend Nam, who's here, is in my. I'm teaching a Prindle uh, reading course on Fukuoka Gendo's science. So basically, by coming with all these things, like they get extreme extra credit for being president. But even in that course, you know, all these kind of thorny ethical uh, issues, and I find it so interesting, especially like within. We could argue whether it's the same faith system, but ostensibly, um, Christianity in America, the, these conflicting narratives. Uh, Shane's new book speaks to this so directly, which is so much largely about what, um, for a lot of us, I'm not speaking for everybody, but it's been on a journey where um, uh, things like capital punishment and mass incarceration and how we think about um, guns, faith is informing us one way. But realistically, and this is kind of the premise of some things we're talking about at Pentecost, there's also the reality that for a very large chunk of people in America, which you know, most people, um, I mean, would still be a majority, have some at least loose connection historically to some kind of Christian faith. And Chad, you were the first person I heard really talk about this, even though I, I was looking on the hook. How much more likely are say, like, white evangelical Christians in America to support the death penalty than anybody else? Yeah, Overwhelmingly, the biggest demographic of supporters of that fund. I'm not sure. 
I mean, I think it's like 90% of the executions, 95% are happening in the Bible Belt, right? You know, and usually Christian governors, Christian legislators, Christians are most populated in those spaces. Yeah. And what, we, what we've come to see is that how overtly these really are, there is theology that underwrites these decisions. Right. One of, part of what I think we learned being, uh, and I am getting to your question, but part of what we learned in Oklahoma mm-hmm. is that what, what we would call um, kind of a like, a like a prosperity gospel is so embedded in the water in Oklahoma. This idea essentially that, well, if you're doing well, it's because uh, you've done the right things and obviously God is blessing you. So anybody has power or affluence, well, they're the ones that God blesses on the other hand. For example, if you're in jail, well, obviously the very fact that you're in jail shows that you deserve to be in jail because uh, people who really love God do the right things. And it's fascinating how every turn of the criminal justice system in Oklahoma, how people think about God and religion directly informs. I mean, it's almost embedded in, well, it really is embedded even in the language, like legally there. And we're seeing this like, wow, okay, so these life and death decisions are made by people based on one kind of narrative about God. And yet, Cece, like for you, um, the story that you've been tapped to, into uh, in this way, the spiritual you've been tapped into, has been one that's largely been reli- uh, in resistance to that. I mean, what was the, you said this morning, um, which that hit me so uh, so deep, um, people for 267 years in America used scripture to justify slavery. Mm-hmm. And so I just let me speak to a little bit like what it has meant for you navigating these conflicting narratives. And, you know, your faith is informing you in one way. A lot of folks that we know and knew like in Oklahoma, it's informing them in a very different way. So, yeah, well, you know, even to answer that question, mm-hmm. I really have to go back to Shane because Shane, first of all, Shane is my leader when it comes to in and all things. I don't know a more uh, vocal, faithful Christian who has been out here the forefront fighting the devil longer and harder than Shane Claiborne. And so, yes, I'm here to talk about my story about Julius Jones, but like I, for the broader context and like the broader issue of death penalty, like this is your person here. I can talk about some things because I've learned those things from him, but this is, this is our person right here. Um, I am very off now because I wanted to talk about Shane. What did you ask? Oh, yeah. how do you man- the, handle those conflicting oh, narratives? Oh, yeah, yeah. That would be, like, again, ostensibly, is in the same Christianity. People read the same oh, text oh, yeah. and go on. Well, so I think that's one. I think, that's, I think maybe that's a part of the problem is that people don't read the text. Mm-hmm. There's some people who are not reading, right? Like Luther went through all these this drama to like nail these things on the door and to like you know, free us to read. And we are still, many of us, not reading. We are depending on people in pulpit to tell us, right? And and that's, <laughs> I think that's, that is an important role, don't get me wrong, but we, we are not culturally, um, uh, I don't think, very biblically literate. And we don't come to the text with um, any kind of a critical eye at all, any kind of interest in historical context, any kind of, you know what I mean? Like, so I think that is a part of the problem. But, you know, Shane started, didn't you? So, when did you start Jerry Lennon Christian? Yeah. So, uh, 
Okay, so Shane started Red Letter Christian some time ago to really help Christians like zone in on the words that Jesus said, right? Like we have a lot of, um, obviously we got 66 books to go through, a lot of great things to, to you know, get out of all of that. But what's most important, now this is what I lived out of, Red Letter Christian, what's most important it's however Jesus lived and whatever Jesus said. Like that's what's most important. So and so what that has uh taught me and kind of led me in is you know, while I respect and honor and inspired by like the biblical text as a whole, if I'm calling myself a follower of the way, if I'm calling myself a, of a follower of this particular man, then what he says outrides any and everything for me. Right. And so I think that I think that's not true for a lot of people. I think that's not true for a lot of Christians that, um, you know, we would kind of hold up the word of maybe I'll pick anybody, hold up the word of Paul. Right. Like the same as Jesus. And I love Paul. Like, thank God for him. And I'm not trying to say anything negative about Paul, but Paul's not my Lord. So when it comes down, I'm not gonna, like when it comes down to you back me up against the wall about like a policy or like um, the death penalty and you know there are a lot of people that want to argue the scripture that Paul talks about about obeying the law of the land and the government officials and all that. All right, well I'll take that. But now, now what did Jesus say? What did he do? I remember him saving a woman from the death penalty. That's what I would call my Lord doing. And so that's not going to be any argument for me when it comes to what anybody else in that text said, if, if, it, if it counters in some way what my Lord did or, or what he said. So I think that a lot of people um, have, a pro- have, like, have a real struggle with that because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, right? And so when, we, so when we've got a variety of texts to then look at and examine, it's hard for us to be critical about saying, mm, okay, they said this and Leviticus, they said this and Numbers said this and Deuteronomy, they said this over and wrong. But now, let me go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Like that takes a level of theological courage mm-hmm. to say, I'm going to turn, I'm gonna, I hear what you said. Thank you for that. But now I'm going to turn and see what my Jesus did. That takes a lot of theological um, courage, I think. And I don't think most of us can do that or will do that because we have a, we have a lot of fear ingrained in our faith, mm-hmm. right? So if we get it wrong, then what will it mean? Um, and so for me, what I think when it just boils down to it, like when you when you melt something down, one of these done. When it boils on down to it, and we get down to the substance of the thing. For me, I would much rather, if I'm wrong, I just much rather err to the side of love. Mm-hmm. And let God judge me based on that. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I hope that's the answer. Uh, uh, yeah, and well, Cece, it's so powerful. There's so many things that, um, that you're saying there. Um, one, I do, there is this. It, it continues to fascinate me that for so many people who would name Christianity as being their religion, there's remarkably little reflection on 
Jesus of Nazareth, Randy Aver, said or did. So that's almost like kind of becomes kind of a mascot. Um, so it is interesting how then following those teachings creates these uh, certain kinds of conflicts. And that's actually uh, the little platform movement. That's one thing we're talking about this whole idea of when you're part of communities where you have identities that didn't come into conflict or tension. Um, uh, this is my faith, but uh, maybe the people around me have a certain concept or ideology about America, what it means to be yeah. American. And then, like, how do we navigate these things when... Uh, because, as, of course, I've seen so much for both of you, there's been a lot of tension and a lot of resistance in doing what you do. I almost feel like throwing this out just to think it'd be sort of fun for everyone. Um, and, I, and I will talk, come back to you, Jason, in a second about kind of some of the resistance and things that you faced in um, the, the Julius work. But Shane and I, a couple years ago, had a pretty significant dust up with Jerry Falwell, Falwell Jr., uh, now I'm the president of Liberty <coughs> University. Would you want to say anything about that? Because that was, that was, a, that was a, quite an adventure that we had at Liberty. Yeah, I think you were ahead of <laughs> I was banned first. We both were banned for life at Liberty University, but I was banned first. It's the only thing I've ever done. I had a shame on anything. So I, I technically was kicked off first. I can't really remember how everything unfolded, but this was in, you know, a lot of things were happening in our country at the time. You know, we were in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement and the Trump era was kind of surfacing. And so we, we decided to have these red letter Christian revival, and so we uh, had we we had the conversation going for a while, and I'd ask Jerry Falwell if he'd pray with me once a month, and we said we're very concerned about. I said very concerned about some of the things you've said, uh, and we'd like to come have a prayer meeting in Lynchburg, and we'd love to do it on campus if we can, if not do it near campus. And so a number of things unfolded, and uh, we ended up organizing this. A wonderful gathering that Jonathan was there for, and lots of other dear friends were came in. Uh, but our our request was to pray at three places on campus: to pray, pray at the president's office, to pray where they train military drone operators, um, to pray for peace in our world, and then to pray for to have a gun range they were building. So we're going to pray for the victims of gun violence there, and. Uh, and we, you know, we asked to do that, and then they told us that if we came on campus to pray, we could be arrested. We would be arrested, and that we'd be charged all this. We could face a year in jail. And I thought the irony is, it's liberty. Religious freedom in public spaces, but anyway, so we had our meeting and it was powerful. And this is the end of that story. I don't know if you know this part, Cece, but we decided we'd write all of our prayers and put them in a box. And because um, we couldn't go on campus, but we thought Tony Campolo, who's our about 90 years old now. And, <laughs> Uh, before he had a stroke, and he, we said, well, they're not going to arrest you. Why don't you deliver the prayers? So he went on campus and to deliver the prayers, and um, when he walked in the office, the receptionist recognized him and said, you're Tony Campolo. You're one of my favorite preachers. Oh, my God. I just can't make this stuff up. <laughs> the amount of people that Tony has led to Kansas is going and yet we couldn't go on this Christian campus. But I think what it what it it reminded me of is that sometimes um, 
rather than allowing Jesus to define our politics, mm -hmm. our politics kind of redefine Jesus for us. Yeah. You know? yeah. Literally, right before we did that, Jerry Falwell was asked about how he reconciled Jesus with some of his politics, and he said, "Dead lines." I don't look to Jesus when it comes to shaping my political And I think that's where you see some of the breakdown. You know, that this is just about personal salvation. Some of the things you're saying, you see, right? And we end up with these versions of Christianity that really just don't look much like Jesus. It was, it's strange enough, it's one of the few things, like we said about Terry Hall Jr., and probably not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I weirdly at the time always appreciate the candor of that statement. Like, at least saying, well, oh, Jesus does it for him, uh, how I think about anything in the world. But, but I appreciate you saying that. Because a lot of people that will say, um, you know, that we, you know, we believe this way, we act this way, and here's how scripture defends it or something. At least here, I feel like it's kind of saying all along, what does Jesus really have to do with any of this? But yeah, this was quite a little drama. So like Shane had been trying to have engage Jerry very in the humble spirit that he does um, for about a year, I had jumped in because Jerry Powell had done a Breitbart exclusive interview. This is when Steve Bannon had left the White House. And I don't feel like this stuff is even loaded. I mean, I talk how, how I talk here. I mean, I don't like how people like will casually throw out the word Nazi. It could be like, I, I don't think that's super healthy. It's like, okay, someone who's rigid about getting the paperwork, oh, they're a real Nazi. But when it comes to like Steve Bannon, I mean, in terms of white supremacists, I know it was like, oh no, that's what actual Nazis look like. This is what actual Nazis believe. And it was so, uh, so like he leaves the White House. He, he, uh, Fawel Jr. says in this piece about how evangelicals need to partner with Steve Bannon to oust the fake Republicans. And that was the thing that just pushed me all the way over in terms of like, okay, this is just such overt white supremacy um, from what's supposed to be the largest Christian university in, in North America. I knew a lot of people there just like, Somebody said Tony Kavala is my favorite preacher. This is not does not represent everybody's beauty. So I fired off on Twitter. There's just actually not like me. I don't I don't normally just go like stirring things up. It's like I'd love to be part of uh, some sort of very peaceful prayer oriented um, <laughs> resistance like in the community. I have friends named Abner and Amanda Ramirez who have a band called Johnny Swim. They were playing the show at Liberty next week, just like a regular concert, but it seemed to have like a nice theater venue. And so Amanda says something favorable about this on Twitter, which I now know caught the university's attention. Uh, so I came to, they said, that, oh, you should, they said, you should come to our show. So I come to the concert on campus with the plan of, uh, I had lined up, I was, it was about 20 professors, handful of staff. We were going to have a prayer meeting the next morning. Now that I work at a private university where I've not been banned, I've kind of, I feel like I should have known Ms. Pollard more. We were all under the impression you could be on campus, like on sidewalks, not in the building. Liberty is much more hardcore than that, like it should be on campus. So when they found out I was there, and I found out later this came from uh, Jerry Jr. directly, I'm at the concert, I get like right, I mean, well, in the green room after with uh, Abner Amanda, get a tap on my shoulder, turn around, it's the chief of Liberty Campus Police, asked me to step outside. They had like five armed, campus police out there. I mean, like, I mean, you know, flashlight in my face, fingerprinting, all the stuff, would not let me walk to my car, personally escorted me off campus. It was very much like this, you step one foot on this campus again, you're subject to imprisonment, fines, like, et cetera. And by the way, they didn't, 
they've never said something like, hey, if you're going to have a prayer meeting, you would have to file paperwork. So they went straight to like, uh, so basically like at 2.30 in the morning, I ended up posting about this on the internet. And by the time I woke up the next morning, the world as I knew it was just on fire. It was like, it was, then it became like the Atlantic and see it and all this. But what was so wild about it was that I thought I'd talked to like 20 students. The only reason that became a thing was because he came down so hard and it blew it up. Mm-hmm. It, I saw this so much, uh, Stacey, with things happen with Julius, the weird ways, especially that some people of faith react so violently. Yeah. Like, like, can you talk about that a little bit in terms of like dealing with the other side of that from also faith people yeah. that work in Oklahoma? Yeah, I would, you know, I have to be honest, I think that was the hardest part of the work. But, uh, one, you know, one of the, one of the efforts that was the hardest, um, cause I was not Amy's at the time. You know, there was a lot about the death penalty, um, that I still didn't know. And, um, I thought that if there would be anybody anywhere that would be opposed to somebody getting executed, especially if they were innocent, I thought it was going to be like the, the, the Christians, right? So naively, one of my very first actions was to, and again, I wasn't, I'm not from Oklahoma, so I didn't know a lot of people. So I found some kind of a um, database that had um, pastor emails. And I think I, 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 I got 129 emails from pastors of South Oklahoma. I sent out this mass email. And I said, you know, there's a man, <laughs> man named Julius Jones, you know, the documentary shows blah, 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 the state is at risk of executing him, you know, um, I'm asking for you all's help in, you know, uh, organizing, like, and I, I didn't use the word organize because I didn't even know that word at the time, community organizing, I didn't even know it, um, but I'm asking for your help, like, can we meet, can we talk, can we start to, to gather about this? And the response that I got from those 129 emails, oh my stars. Mm. I wasn't prepared. Like I, mm. I just I was so naive. I didn't know. You know, I a pastor emailed me back and said, you know, he deserves to burn in hell. Um, somebody um another pastor emailed me back calling him the N-word and said that they wouldn't care of the kingdom of God. Um, but it was like it was it was so many of those emails that you know no we won't help you no he, no he did die right and I I remember just crumbling like I just could not believe that you know I wasn't prepared to 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 for that kind of a response um, and then the very next I can't say the very next thing but one of the things that I did next was okay. All right, then, can I find 25 pastors? Can I find 25 that will sign on to the, a letter to the district attorney of Oklahoma County to say, we need you not to execute Julius Jones? I found 25, got the letter signed, so excited, sent it over to the DA, DA and the DA said to me, because he had tried to hear whispers about me in the community, you know, and he said to me, I'm tired of what you're doing. I want you to shut up. I don't want you sending me any more letters. Tell these 25 faith leaders that they need to pray for Julius soul because he will be executed. And this is a DA who 
goes to one of the most prominent evangelical churches in the community. And again, I'm shocked because in Oklahoma, I don't know where it is like in other places, but like in Oklahoma, when people are running for office, a lot of them are running, lifting up their Christian values. And this was one of those people, you know, you know, everybody talked to me about how this DA was such a Christian man. And so to get a response from him like that, again, I just wasn't, I just wasn't prepared, you know? Mm. So um, those are just some of the ways in which, um, you know, you know, there's been kind of like a, uh, a reckoning, really, of faith through Judas's story mm. in Oklahoma. Um, the, the blessing, though, is that there are Christians on the other side, and there are Christians who change their mind. Mm-hmm. And there are people of all different faiths in Oklahoma who saw the value of this man's life and came to his assistance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I you know, the light in my opinion definitely outshines the darkness, but it that, it was very very dark. And so, you know, since then that has really kind of put a um a burden on my heart around like the theology that we have in the Bible Belt, you know, like the things that we, the things that we believe and the punitive nature, our bloodthirst is um, something that I just, um, I, it grieves me really deeply. And I, and I should also say that the Attorney General at the time, um, a devout Catholic man, um, the governor of Oklahoma, a devout evangelical Christian. Um, and these were three men, three white men, Christian men who lined up shoulder to shoulder, mm-hmm. very committed to murdering a man who did not even commit the crime. And when I say didn't commit the crime, I'm talking about confessions from another person after David saying, hey, He's been, he's, he's told five, six people that Julius didn't do this. And a state that is so insistent upon this prideful attitude that we, that maybe we got it wrong, that we're just going to plow through it because our power, our reputations, our images are more important than this black man's life. And that's really what it came down to. That's really what it came down to. And that's hard for me. That's hard for me for people who say and lift up the name of Jesus. It's hard. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, but the resistance, but then also, as you say, so many people who got on board and it was, became such a beautiful movement. One of the bittersweet things when I think about, and I know again, um, the fight for the Holy Spirit still continues as unconstitutionally Governor Stitt uh, attempted to make an edict that he would not ever be eligible for parole. And part of what made all this so um, wild to begin with is that you know, we had all the political cover in, in the world, the multiple recommendations from the Pardon Parole Board. Yeah. Uh, just not so many things we could say about that case in particular from um, 
the, the, his defense team actually not giving him a defense at all, which yeah. they've admitted and apologized for. Uh, you're using the N-word. I mean, there's so many things. Then, as you said, ultimately, too, um, now the person uh, who we believe did this, who confessed to a number of people, and there's signed statements, all things. Um, but part of what was so uh, so bittersweet to me, it's like it's, it's so wonderful to see the movement that came out of that, and yet the fact that heaven and earth had to be moved, over 7 million signatures, and still barely, I mean, the governor's office clearly did not want to rule that. I mean, it, it barely happened. Like, it took that much push from that many people and still came down to, like, hours before. I mean, I think that goes to show, for me, like, how just how deep and how embedded that kind of resistance is. In uh, you know, a case that from the beginning riddled with so many problems. And that, you know, but, it took all, but taking all of that for, for one. one. For one. I mean... Here's what it's taught me at the end of the day, and, I, and I'm going to talk about this t- tomorrow at tomorrow's lecture. People are more powerful than systems. Mm. That's one of the things that really mm. come to bear for me at the end of the day with all of this. People, the power of the people is an extraordinary thing. Yeah. And um, what we saw was a, in my vernacular, a move of God. What we saw was um, the building of a human chain, literally around the connect, around the country, around the world. And listen, I everybody knows I worked hard. I did my part. I, you know, I'll probably almost have nervous breakdown in the process. But um, I do have to say that none of that, like the the ways doors were open, the kind of people that came together. Um, not possible through me. Uh, that was totally, totally God. And, and, and I say that because it's true. But the, the kind of human chain, and that is what it takes. That's what it's going to take to end the death penalty. That's what it's going to take to end mass incarceration. That's what it's going to take for any systemic issue that we have in America is to build a human chain of people who say, nope, you're not coming through this. And that, that chain has to be built with a diversity of people. It can't be just one group of people. It can't be just one class of people. It can't be just one kind of people. Like it has to be a diverse group of people saying, Did you hear what that woman said? I'm repeating what she said. You're not coming through us. It has to take rich people and not so rich people and everybody, everybody. And I think that justice for Julius was just like a um, a symbol of that, that when people from different places come together and we focus in on one particular issue, something has to happen. I mean, you know, something has to happen. And I have to say <clears throat> that um, Antoinette Jones will be here tomorrow, yes. Julius' sister, and I know we will be having this conversation today, but Antoinette will be here tomorrow. And- if you knew the resiliency of this family, if you knew the resilience of the Jones family, having a loved one on death row for nearly 20 years, and the faith that it took, has taken, and continues to take for them to um, encourage Julius, fight for Julius, be a voice for him, um, and, and carry on life, 
Like Mama Jones, his mother, has been a school teacher for 40 years. How's she teaching somebody's child? I don't know how I'm going in the classroom teaching somebody's child if my child is on death row. I don't know. I mean, so, you know, the strength and the resilience, it rings back to the Black story of what the kinds of things. They're not just Black people, but I'm using this as an example right now. Black people have had to continue to figure out ways to live, to cut through the center of extraordinary challenges. It's, 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 an, it's an incredible, incredible thing. I think, and I'm going to open this up to questions. I'm not the right time, and certainly all, since we have a, a thing tonight. But, you know, CC, for a lot of us, in getting, it was so humbling to, well, to be in community with Julius mom and sister and the family. That's been, I've always said that you never want to, like, turn people into symbols. But I think for a number of us, like, Mama Jones has become, like, almost a, a patron saint. She's a patron the, saint. The joy that she has. And as you said, like the resilience, it's the kind of thing that through any and all other kinds of like disillusionment um, makes, has made me feel like having to hang on to something larger because I just, her joy, I've heard you people pray, I thought this was a great one for them, impeccable witness of the Jones family. It's like, it's hard to be around that and not be altered. Change. Like I, I know from this experience and just being in community with these folks, I, I won't be the same. You know, my life will never be the same because I have um, been proximate to such strength and power and faith and suffering. You know, um, I think one thing that we need to take to know in this country is that when we punish people, when we lock people away and throw away a key, when we put somebody on death row, we put the entire family on death row. Their entire family, these people's lives have been altered for the rest of their lives because the system decided that their son was not worthy to live. That's something that as a country we have to grapple with, that we, yes, people have to be held accountable for what they do. But when you are, we are so punitive, when we are so merciless, we destroy innocent people over and over and over again. And I think that, you know, we're in a really um, uh, unique context conversation in that the uh, federal death penalty is right here in Indiana. Where is it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 30 minutes, 24 Okay, the, the federal death penalty is here. Um, during Trump's administration, how many people? Do you remember what the 13 people, something like that? It was more than that, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a train of executions, uh, even after the election, even going into January okay. and the new year. Uh, and all the federal executions happened here. You probably know that in Terre Haute. Um, and yeah, so we've got work to do. And I was thinking of that coming out because all the signs you know, on the road of mileage. And, um, and Biden had the responsibility because his 1994 crime bill actually expanded the 
death-worthy federal crimes. So there's people on facing execution at a federal level that wouldn't be there if it weren't for Biden's former policy. And he flipped on the death penalty, um, but has, I think, a big responsibility. So CC and others of us, John and I, have been trying, we, we've got a whole lot uh, a whole movement around abolish and demolish, asking Biden to demolish the federal death chamber in Terre Haute. And we've met with the highest levels of, of the Biden administration, and there's nothing that uh, legally stopping that. It's a matter of will. So, it's a matter of will. And there's a petition you can sign, but we're hoping to come to Terre Haute for the demolition party to yeah. celebrate that, yeah. honestly. Yeah, but that, but after years without a single federal execution. Um, I think the last one was Timothy McVeigh, but uh, we went years and years, and then they restarted um, and the, under the Trump presidency, and he killed more, he killed folks at a federal execution level more than we've seen in a hundred years. And so even just leaving that death house there kind of leaves the door open to uh, another president and tearing it down like uh, yeah. makes a statement and it moves the needle a little bit and it kind of is both like literally effective but it's also symbolic that we we want to move on from this yeah. terrible crime. We want to move on and you know I think that um, the people of Indiana are in such a unique mm-hmm. position to say yeah not in our place so, not in not on not in our place not where we live. I think you know um, the people of this of of this state have such an opportunity. I, I don't know what's going on here around like um, abolition work, but there's such an opportunity to really mm-hmm. really come together and form a human chain around here and say, "Listen, we're gonna mm-hmm. stop killing people around here." And if, if the gov- the federal government is so um, determined to spill blood, then y'all have to do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So there's so I just want to put that out here. Like there's such an opportunity for because you all are in a, in a unique position mm-hmm. as it relates to this particular issue. So um yeah, I just, I just wanna say I just wanna say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm so nervous between that and as much as I think and then we're the deck is stacked here with us in terms of God, I know we have ethical issues with the death penalty in general the idea of the state executing people, but it really is, it, and of course we know so many of these cases will never be reviewed. No one cares enough to look deeper. But it is so, I think, shocking and alarming for people when they do get into um, cases and statistics. How many people on death row, I mean, they're proven. I mean, it's so alarmingly high. People who, when cases are examined, end up being exonerated because like, and you what a thing to be wrong about. <laughs> what a you know, wrong thing to be wrong about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you two stories that if nothing else yeah. moves me or you on the death penalty, you might, you might believe, you know, well, you know, somebody commits a heinous crime that they deserve to die. I, I understand that thinking. I really do. But when we have a system where it's thought to be, what, 4% of people on death row may be innocent, that's a whole lot. Four percent might not be a whole lot to me, but it'd be a whole lot of that with your child. It'd be a whole lot of that with your uncle, your cousin, somebody you love. Four percent all of a sudden becomes a whole lot, right? And there are two, there are really there are two strong stories outside of Julius, obviously, that really, that really, really 
make me gritty about this. And that is Anthony Ray Henson, black man who served 30 years on Alabama's death row for a crime that a simple ballistics test would have proven on a rickety gun that he didn't commit. But the police and the DA said to him, we don't care if you're innocent. We just got to get any black man off the street. That man served 30 years on death row before Brian Stevenson's organization was able to prove his innocence. He wrote a book called um, The Sun Does Shine. It is powerful. If you've never um, read his story, now he goes around the world like talking about forgiveness and love and, and all kinds of amazing things. If that's not enough to say, okay, y'all, now, you know, clearly we got something off here. Let's just shut this thing down. But if, if you need more, there are more stories like here. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the other one that really gets me is right, um, George Stenning. Mm-hmm. George Stenning, 14 years old, South Carolina, 1940-something, was accused of touching two white girls without a trial, without anything. These people shot this little boy, 14 years old, he was a the youngest person to be executed in the United States, having strapped into a chair, electrocute a 14-year-old. Have you seen a 14-year-old? Executed this woman. And then years later, proven to be innocent. We have to stop. That's so evil. And so there's no other reason that, you know, despite the fact that there are people who, yes, they do horrible things. I personally believe that even those people deserve grace. That's me personally. But if that's not you, at the very least, we know we kill other people. So let's stop it just based on that. We know that black men are three times more likely to receive a death sentence in this country for the same uh, or same or similar crime as a white person commits. It's a racist practice. Scientifically, if we're about social, if we're about racial justice in this country, we've got to abolish the death sentence. It has, it just has to go. And so, you know, um, Julius's situation and his story has rooted me in this and given me the proximity that I needed to have a compassion toward it. But again, people like Shane have been at this war for a very, very long time. And so I just bring my story to the table in the hopes of adding to the voices and the energy and the passion and helping to carry this water until until our leaders and we can get it over the finish line. Thank you, Cece. It's sharing from your heart that way. I would feel uh, selfish to be the only person who's able to pitch questions to the two of you, uh, my wisest friends. Um, anybody have anything you'd like to ask of Cece or Shane? I have a question. Um, so, a lot of what you guys have talked about has been kind of focused on the idea of like personal. I forget the term you used for it, but you used it to describe how Oklahoma, people in Oklahoma sometimes conceptualize their faith of like, I'm personally going to get to heaven and everybody else can, yeah, 
Kick rocks. Thank you. I'm <laughs> Everybody else can kick rocks. So I'm I'm wondering, especially given in the light of what we've been talking about about prison abolition and the death penalty, which is an extreme form of of what of mass incarceration, right? Mass incarceration is this, the death penalty in, feeds on mass incarceration. Mass incarceration feeds on the death penalty. It's all one big system. And these these people who are doubling down on on the law, how how is it possible for them to have a conceptualization of as long as I am not sinning, I am okay, and then also at the same time be comfortable condemning um, another person's death, murdering another person? How, where is that cognitive dissonance? And I know you guys obviously don't hold those beliefs as well. You might not be able to speak to them, but like scripturally like culturally how are they justifying that um the idea that i am not personally responsible for this death but i i'm personally interested in getting to happen if that makes sense um you know i think that a lot of us have been cultured in the search to um, around like a certain ideas around the world, right? Like the darkness of the world, the um, the world as a fall as a fallen place and uh, as a place that needs redemption. Um, in the world, you will have tribulation. Be a good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So, like um, you know, we understand scripturally that um, the world has problems, right? The world uh, has issues that that. Um, some some people read the scripture as we can't do anything about our hope and faith without the meaning of Jesus. Um, I think that the scripture that that we don't lift up an uh, equal value is the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and everything that is in it. In other words, you know where we live is where God created what God created, right? And this also mandate to advance the kingdom of God. What What is the kingdom of God? It's neither here nor there, but it's in us. Like advancing the kingdom of God in the world. So I think a lot of people come out from, from the scripture, from church with an idea that, um, that we're in the world, not of it, and there's nothing we can do. It's a bad place and we're just not doing anything good. And so I think a lot of people justify not doing anything just by saying, hey, well, the Bible told us that we have all these terrible things out in the world. So there's just nothing we can do. And we don't um, maybe orient or ground ourselves in that light of the world. We are the light of the world sitting on a, um, hidden, on a hill can't be hidden. You know, we don't ground ourselves on these ideas around advancing. What does it mean then? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like that connection between heaven and earth, we we don't take a responsibility for because we just say, well, you know, world's bad place and it's one hill and that's all that could be done or said about it. I think it's that kind of theology that's blocking us from seeing our potential and our power to know, to really like do some good. I'm not saying the world gonna be greatest place ever always, so I'm saying, I am saying that if God has a vision for the world, 
God has a vision for the earth, then doggone it, then I can catch on to that thing mm-hmm. and be a, be a part of it in some kind of way, small, small, large, but some kind of way. He's got a vision for the, or God has a vision for the, and so then I need to start tapping into that. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Yes, good word. Anything else? You know, I, I, some of what uh, Stacy said earlier, too, I think of decentering Jesus, like taking our eyes off of Jesus, you end up uh, finding scriptures that can justify the version of justice that we see in the death penalty. But if you say, like, who would Jesus execute? You know, like, Jesus has said, blessed are the merciful, and as much as you forgive, you'll be forgiven. All these things, it becomes harder and harder to do it. But, you know, this is maybe a deeper conversation getting in the weeds a little bit, but I think what we've also done is sanctify the power of the state. Yes, no. And so we allow systems to do what we would never permit individuals to do. And... Um, and I think this is one of the great heresies, really. And Martin Luther, I know I'm in that space, but like Martin Luther helped with this idea that the state can do no wrong. Um, and some of the Reformation, like um, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, um, <laughs> the executioner is not just the hand of the state, but the executioner is the hand of God. And um, there's lots of other iterations of that kind of blank check that the state has permission to kill. And I'm I'm a I'm committed to nonviolence across the board. I don't imagine all of us are, but like I think that that's where it becomes really hard to justify war and military service and different things that conflict with our allegiance to the Prince of Peace, you know, but particularly on the death penalty. That's why we have these whole systems where no one wants to be the killer. Um, And there's so many layers that provide anonymity. Um, Like that's why you have parole boards, you have a governor that wouldn't, it's not pulling the button, but they're signing the warrant. And a lot of times you have entire teams that are carrying the burden of executing someone. And in Oklahoma, they decided we can only execute someone every three weeks without traumatizing people because it does something to you to kill people. And I, you know, I interviewed a, a, a couple of executioners that ended up being against the death penalty for um, an executing grace. And one of them said he's still really, he's still a really diehard kind of like um, tough on crime kind of guy, but he said, I just found that there's no good way to kill someone. Mm-hmm. You know, like it does something to us. But uh, tonight I'll have, we're going to put some things on display. And one of them is a death warrant or, uh, or the, um, yeah, the, the death certificate of someone who was executed. And on the death certificate, it says the manner of death is homicide. Mm-hmm. Like that's what it lists in the manner of death or an execution. So that's what we're doing, but that's why everybody wants to wash their hands. And even if you look at Jesus's execution, no one really wants to own the full responsibility of it. It's getting passed around everywhere. It's the same way with Jewish. It's the same way with most of these executions. So I think that's what we've got to do is like make this personal to, to realize that you've got power in this situation. 
and uh, and there are those stories of courage, like Adam Luck, you yes. know, who was a, a governor appointed head of the Board of Pardons and Fro in Oklahoma, and his faith compelled him to question this system after he looked at thousands and thousands of these cases over the years, and he kept voting against the, the executions, and the governor um, confronted him and eventually asked him to step down. Um, and uh, he tells his own story. It's really powerful. But I think that's like the question for all of us is kind of what does it look like to show courage and resistance to that system? Because the fact is, if people, individuals decided not to kill, the system can't kill. Like the system doesn't just kill people without the complicity of the individuals. Yeah. It is worth, I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I should have said that before. Shane's written a lot of books on the subject, but. He does have a whole book on this, Executed Grace is one for sure to check out. Um, I love the way you described that, Shane, in terms of the way the system and probably glares and insulation from anybody exactly feeling complicit. Because um, that's that's at least part of how I would think about kind of this question is that I still think that there's an America that I love as an idea, the way Dr. King would speak about America. Uh, when Otis Moss III is here tonight, when he talks about democracy in terms of like a highlight, there is a vision of America that I think is worth contending for that is beautiful. But I also think there is an America that exists as a kind of religion unto itself. And one of the things, like, I had an amazing conversation with Imam Alameen here Friday afternoon, and we talked about how, like, I really do think this is not this unique to Christians. He was some of his experience within Islam, and I feel like I have this Natalie more interfaith work. I have this conversation a lot. America as religion is radically individualistic. It's kind of like it's kind of the the basis of it. It's, I can take care of myself. There's sort of a, every person for themselves. It's kind of in the, like ground floor there. So I think what happens often is that people, even as they participate in faith system, they're so shaped by these ideas about America that I think actually are quite religious in nature. Um, that ends up taking precedence over even what, uh, their, what their faith might say. And even if they get to have a faith leader cross it, a lot of people, especially kind of as things are now, well, like, my pastor's just wrong. I'm, I'm listening to this guy on talk radio. I saw this on Facebook. And that actually becomes more, more of an influence in how they think about these things. But I just think like that kind of, the kind of communal, communal identity that I think is crucial to any religion, to any like prominent like faith system, is very much at odds with this very American kind of individuality. Um, anybody else questions? Reverend Dr. Uh, especially uh, Dean of Spiritual Life, or in my doctor, some of the great question answers that I have. Oh gosh, that, that's a lot of pressure right there. Mm -hmm. Great question answer. I'll save my questions for this evening. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. That's right. I, it's, it's wonderful. It's so inspiring to hear both of you and, and to imagine. The work that we as our community have and as students here and what we can be doing and the ways we might be called to do other things, it's invigorating. Thank you, God. And probably it's challenging for probably all of us. I know it's, you know, even being here for a short time, I do think there's, we were, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, before, it's like the, there's such a wonderful sense of community at DePaul that I love, but I didn't want to challenges you know of any kind of like university life is that becomes a bit of a bubble so even being in terms of like Shane as you were talking about like all oh, Indiana 
and how our community engages with this larger community and what that looks like. And that's one of the things I feel like I've been here just long enough now to where I feel like I've had to start to think more critically about like, okay, what does it look like beyond our immediate community here to participate more structurally in these broader realities in our where we live? Mm. Anybody else any other questions or well um I, I want y'all to at least be able to have a little bit of rest. So now we're picking this right back up at 7 o'clock for part one uh, tonight. So again, uh, CeCe's going to be doing music, Shane and Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. It is going to be such a treat for y'all. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow night. Antoinette Jones will be joining CeCe. And in terms of just, she's such a this gorgeous human being. And I think in terms of really getting a sense of, who the Jones family is mm. and why this this story in particular has been such a galvanizing one for some of us. Mm. Uh, tomorrow night's going to be really special too. But thank you again to Campus Activities. It's so fun to collaborate on this. And thank you all for coming. Can we give our guests a round of applause?